This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. It's not in your Bible, it's not even in the Apocrypha, but it is part of scripture according to the Mormon Church. Jake Hilton exposes the fraud behind the Book of Abraham, a supposed lost book written in hieroglyphs by Abraham himself while he and Sarah were living in Egypt. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Well, Shabbat Shalom to our fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. Have you ever heard of the Book of Abraham? Well, me either, but it's not some lost book that actually has validity. It's a book that was a complete fraud from the beginning, and modern Egyptology proves it. Jake Hilton explains tonight on the fourth of six episodes in our series, Why I Left Mormonism. That's tonight's episode four, Friday, February 3rd, but our date looks a little different on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. There you have it right there. We have entered into the 12th day on the 11th month as of sunset tonight. Now, please welcome my co-host, Ted Clayton. Well, thanks for having me here, Scott. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have a show that you're, want, you're going to want to invite your entire family, your neighbors and friends to come watch. You don't want to miss this one tonight, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, absolutely. You don't want to miss this because as we're going to introduce a new book that is new. It was new to me until yeah. Jake explained it, but have you ever heard of the book of Abraham? I have never heard of the book of Abraham. <laughs> now that could, that could tell you several things about my education <laughs> with that, but I, I don't think I've ever heard of that. No, neither had I. And, and you know, we've, we've spent time and I grew up in the Baptist church and you were a, a, a pastor at one yeah. point and yes. I, you know, Mennonite church, or Mennonite uh, church and school and all that mm -hmm. is what I went through. But this book of Abraham, I guess is uh, this book that Joseph Smith apparently took from Egyptian hieroglyphs at okay. a time when no one knew how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs. Yeah. So he kind of pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and said, by the spirit, I know how to read this. Oh. And sort of made up his own thing. Okay. And then of course, as the years went on and Egyptology became a thing and people began to understand this, they looked back at what he had done and went, no, that's Wait, not it. This is all debunked. <laughs> this this all, isn't real. But yeah, it's not a yeah. bit of it is real. And, yeah. But yet, modern Mormonism still trusts in this, even though they know it's junk. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's why Michael has always said, read the Bible for yourself. Right. Make sure you have the understanding and interpretation yourself and don't allow other men to interpret the Bible for you. Right. And you and I have both been in churches where, you know, innocently enough, I mean, we, you know, the Pharisees created fence laws oh, so sure. that people wouldn't break the Torah. Absolutely. And, you know, the Mennonite church, mm -hmm. the Baptist church, mm -hmm. they all create their own little fences too. Like I know when, uh, when I went to Mennonite high school, we didn't have any dances because, well, that would lead to sexual activity and we couldn't have right. that. Exactly. So don't even dance together. So what, what was it in like when you were a pastor? Well, in, in the Baptist church, well, of course, I was an Assemblies of God uh, okay. minister for years and years. But in the Baptist, I was raised Baptist. And in the Baptist church, they really frowned upon dancing. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know that nice. also. Okay. But, but also, of course, uh, even communion, as it was back then, uh, was always grape juice. There was never real wine. It was always grape juice. And uh, so, you know, man has done crazy things to interpret uh, the Bible and to make their own, as Michael would always say, to make their own man-made religions. So um, you just really got to dive into the Bible yourself and make sure you understand. Listen, Jesus drank wine. Yeshua <laughs> drank wine. Right. Okay. So how we get into this grape juice stuff, I don't know. I don't know. It, it seems to me too, like it, the more rules we have, the more man-made anything becomes. Whether, matter, uh, matter of fact, Yeshua changed water into wine. Right. right? Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, y- yeah. Well, and, just, and the, didn't they say at that wedding that, that you saved the best wine, wine for last? So that's I thought, hey, this is great grape juice. Yeah. No, they were saying, <laughs> you saved the best wine for last, so not only did Absolutely. he make wine, he made really good wine. Absolutely. You're right. You're right. But you know what, Scott? We got something exciting to talk about, and that's Passover 2023. My goodness. Yeah. So Passover 2023, this is our first live event. since uh, pre, pre-COVID, I, I mean, guess, this, right? our first live event probably since 2019. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, that we actually have people in the audience with us here. And it's going to be an exciting time, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to want to miss a moment of Passover 2023. And we just got some of the best guests. We're going to be setting some captives free here. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know this, what I'm is, saying? this is a great concept uh, that Nehemia brought to our attention. Yeah. Uh, about setting the captives free, what it meant, what is, and something really interesting is what does the Bible say about divorce? That's right. That was eye-opening when he brought yeah. that to, to our attention. And also he's going to bring up something uh, regarding modern times yeah. about how some women in these Eastern cultures are trapped without a husband, and yet they're not allowed to remarry. What's that all about? Talk about setting a captive free. So we're going to talk about that too. And one of the greatest things about Passover 2023 is Michael Rood is going to be here, ladies and gentlemen. That's the best part. That's going to be the best part. So so we're going to see Michael here, and uh, the studio audience is going to be able to talk with him and see him, and it's just going to be fantastic. We're also going to have Tim Mahoney. Oh, yeah, right. Keith Johnson, uh, Nehemia Gordon, as we said, Scott Laird is always going to kick us off with the uh, with the medical teaching of yes. the uh, of the session, as it were. How to break free from big pharma? Oh yeah, yeah. we're going to go. go there. It's yeah. going to be great. I may even be able to do a couple of things, ah. and we're just, ladies and gentlemen, it is just going to be a fantastic uh, day. And that evening, we're going to have the seder, and we're going to have the seder with Michael Rude. Oh wow! And this is all going to be live. You know, yeah. I think in 2020 we did we did a Passover event online, but we kind of had to pre-tape everything just right. because of all the stuff going on. Yeah, and 2021. And you're right. And yeah. now we can actually literally do it live. So as you're seeing it, it is happening, it's happening. here live. Yep. So it's going to be a great time. And uh, there's the information on the bottom of your screen, how you yep. can sign up to watch this online. Uh, really affordable price to watch this. Yep. And uh, so it, it's going to be a great thing. Yes, indeed. And uh, lots of extras for you too as well, including some uh, a discount for our store during that week and oh, all yeah. kinds of stuff. Don't miss it. Now, speaking of the store, okay, so it's February 3rd. That means we mm-hmm. have a new love gift. That's what this stuff is beside me here. Uh, we're going to let the commercial do the talking for most of this, but these are some uh, Jerusalem stone candlesticks you can get. Wow. A faith and generosity box set, which has uh, the widow's mite as 
displayed on a mug. Uh -huh. We have a, a book and a, and a wooden pen in here as well. But the greatest thing is a teaching from our friend and neighbor, Matthew Vanderell. Ladies and gentlemen, this gentleman is absolutely fantastic. He has a great word that he's going to give you. We're just thrilled to have Matthew Vanderell's with us. And I think the radical rabbi is going to really open your eyes with this particular time. It is, and you know, I let a friend of ours who was uh, debating some things in his mind about going to church or you know, what is about this messianic thing you do? Mm -hmm. yeah. He found this a very palatable lesson to hear from Matthew Vanderels, who is uh, a Torah-observant uh, pastor. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but he found nothing wrong with what Matthew said, so it's a great step for friends who are maybe questioning things, sitting in the pew saying, what else is there? Yeah. Right. Now, right. speaking of what else is there, check this out. This is going to be what you're going to see tonight. Don't add to, don't subtract from my commandments. That's what the book of Moses is in the Pearl of Great Price. It's huge additions made directly to the Torah. All right, there you go. It's not in your Bible, it's not even nope. in the Apocrypha, but it's part of scripture. According to the Mormon church, Jake Hilton exposes the fraud behind the book of Abraham. That's coming up next. What made Yeshua different from the rabbis of his time? Why did everyone run to see him wherever he went? What was it that made his message so radical? Yeshua sits down among a crowd, like any teacher should do, and he begins a powerful message that spans several chapters, and it's radical, and it's messy, and it's hard. The Radical Rabbi, with Pastor Matthew Vanderels, brings context and clarity to the culture of the first century, explaining how Yeshua's teachings were able to convince a people surrounded by rules and religion to lead their lives in a radically different way. The Radical Rabbi with Matthew Vanderels is our gift to thank you for supporting A Rude Awakening International. When you donate $50 to this ministry in February, we'll send you The Radical Rabbi on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you The Radical Rabbi, plus the Faith and Generosity box set featuring a solid wood pen, a 150-page journal, and a unique coffee mug featuring the story of the widow's might. Donate $300 and we'll send you three gifts. The Radical Rabbi, the Faith and Generosity box set, plus a pair of authentic Jerusalem stone candle holders decorated with replicas of ancient biblical medals. Get these gifts now for a limited time from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Get these exclusive thank you gifts when you make a donation to support A Rude Awakening International in February. Call 888-766-3610 or get your gifts online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. Some of the traditions in modern-day Judaism are what Yeshua said are takanot, laws which change biblical law, which are forbidden, and Yeshua said don't do them. But other traditions are remembrances of good things in the past, and they are a shadow picture of good things to happen in the future. On the Sabbath, we take two hollow loaves, two loaves of bread. This represents the manna, the double portion that we received on the sixth day. This was God's provision for us. And 
This is what it continues to mean to us today. When Yeshua, just before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, at the last supper that he had with his disciples, he took bread and he blessed, not the bread, he blessed the Most High. And he said, Baruch Atah, Yehovah, Elohim Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem, Min Haaretz. And he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, remember this. By his stripes, we were healed. And then he took the cup and he said, in the prayer of Melchizedek to Abraham, Baruch atah Yahweh, Elohim melech ha'alam, Borei Puri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yahovah, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And Yeshua said this, what you have been doing for a thousand years from the time of Abraham, this represents the renewed covenant in my blood. This is how I will pay for the broken covenant. I will pay the death penalty and do this until I come. Well, welcome back to our series with Jake Hilton. Uh, before we get to things, please turn in your Bible with me to 2 Hezekiah. You don't have 2 Hezekiah? Okay. How about the, let's turn to Abraham. Turn with me to the book of Abraham. <laughs> you don't have that one either? Okay, let's talk about it. Jake, what the heck is the book of Abraham? <laughs> I thought it was in my Bible. It's not, but well, apparently well, somebody... It's, it's, the book of Abraham is <laughs> sandwiched between Ecclesiastes uh -huh. and uh, that second Hezekiah. Second Hezekiah, well, of course. I'm telling you, it's there. You just got to... Just got to look for it. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. <laughs> now, in the in the Mormon world, I mean, this this is a real thing. The book oh, of Abraham. Most certainly. What what is this in, book of in Abraham? In past episodes, we've talked about the three foundational scriptural books of Mormonism. We've got the Book of Mormon, the claim being that this is a uh, word of God translated through Joseph Smith into you know. Uh, from these ancient records, these ancient American records. We've got Doctrine and Covenants, mm -hmm. which is direct revelation from God to Joseph Smith concerning the LDS Church. And then we also have this third book, which is called The Pearl of Great Price. And in The Pearl of Great Price, there are a few books, and one of them is this book of Abraham. And right, what is this book? What is it about? And can we use this book in order to show, to prove more so than we already have in past episodes, <laughs> that Joseph Smith is not a prophet of God, but he is the exact opposite. He is a false prophet sent directly by Hasatan. Mm. And I think that you and your audience will see, oh, it most certainly proves the latter and not the former. <laughs> so. It sounds all well and good. I mean, it names a patriarch, a book of Abraham. Why wouldn't there be a book of Abraham? It, it sounds, oh yeah, it sounds authoritative, right? Yeah. It's like, right, well, we know we got Father Abraham from uh, the book of Genesis. It would 
shouldn't he have a book of his own type of deal? Moses okay. wrote five. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's another thing. In The Pearl of Great Price, there is actually, quote, a book of Moses, which a lot of the chapters in this book of Moses are those added sections to the Torah itself. Oh, dear. So, yeah, we talked about, you know, one of those objective tests to show what a false prophet is. Don't add to, don't subtract from my commandments. That's what the book of Moses is in The Pearl of Great Price. It's huge additions made directly to the Torah. So... Okay. Getting to the book of Abraham, as you can see here, we've got the background, Egyptian hieroglyphs, and then we've got also this, this circular type image with also Egyptian hieroglyph looking imagery. The book of Abraham, what is this? And how did this book come about through this false prophet, Joseph Smith? Context. In the 1820s, we had a number of archaeologists that were coming down from Europe into the land of Egypt. We, it really begins with, uh, you could say, uh, Bonaparte, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. He goes to Egypt. A lot of the people with him, they start uh, writing down things that they're seeing, like the pyramids and the Sphinx and all this you know, magnificent type of you know, architecture down there. They go back to Europe and Europe is now all abuzz with the mysteries of Egypt. You know, we, we got to figure this place out. A lot of archaeologists are going down to Egypt. And there was one in particular by the name of Lebeau. And he goes to the ancient city of Thebes. And there, digging in the ancient city of Thebes, he uncovered numerous mummies in their sarcophagi. I believe it was 11 total. And he also came across numerous Egyptian papyri scrolls. And some of these scrolls were complete and had all the imagery, the drawings, as well as the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And some of them were more fragments of, I mean, we're looking at, you know, these are 2,000, 3,000 some odd years old. These ones in particular have been dated to be about 200 BC. He finds these and gets them back to Europe ultimately gets them to the United States of America, where they fell into the hands of an antiquities dealer by the name of Michael Chandler. This antiquities dealer, he takes all of these mummies and the Egyptian papyri, he starts going throughout the then-established United States of America, which was pretty much just Eastern United States, showing off this, these Egyptian wonders. So an ex exhibition He's tour. Oh yeah, basically a, a tour where he charges a small fee for anyone who wants to see. You want to see a mummy? You want to actually you know, see the, <laughs> the mummified remains of somebody that was you know, buried thousands of years ago? And look at this Egyptian papyri scroll. Look at this mysterious language. Now, it's important to know that at this time in the United States, no one could read Egyptian. This is, by the time the Egyptian artifacts have fallen into the hands of Michael Chandler, we're now talking 1834, 1835. That's the time period. The Rosetta Stone in Europe had only been discovered 15 some odd years before. And people were, linguists were still trying to crack that code and figure out this very mysterious Egyptian language. And what little progress had been made with Egyptian at that time was basically only happening in Europe. None of it had reached the United States. So know that no one in the United States reads Egyptian. No one can. 
So Michael Michael Chandler, he's going throughout the United States and he's you know showing off you know his Egyptian wares, yeah, making you know a, a buck doing that. But then also whenever he comes across say a group of individuals or a museum that's interested in purchasing some of these things to own them for their said museum, he's more than happy to do that as well. So he's selling off some of these mummies and papyri scrolls as he's going along. Michael Chandler, in late June of 1835, he ends up in the small town of Kirtland, Ohio, which at the time was the headquarters of the LDS Church. They had moved from New York down to Ohio and established the small town Kirtland. Michael Chandler comes in and he just does what he's always done, you know, a dozen times previous. He starts showing, you know, his Egyptian mummies. At that time, he had four of them left. The others had already been sold. And I believe he had five papyri scrolls left. He's showing this to this group of Mormons and they're flabbergasted. They're blown away. And Michael Chandler, because they're, you know, the Mormons are asking Michael, you know, do you know what this says? And Michael's saying, no one knows what this says. No one can read this stuff. And that's where the Mormons said, we have someone who can read that. Really? You actually have somebody who can read this? Oh, yes. He's a prophet of God. His name's Joseph Smith Jr. We're going to tell Joseph Smith about you and about your stuff. We're going to bring him here. That's exactly what they do. They bring Joseph Smith. Joseph looks at the papyri and he goes, yes, I can read this. And I'm telling you right here that this papyri, it's actually of the writings of Abraham. He said that they were the writings of Father Abraham, as well as the writings, some of them, of Joseph who was sold into Egypt. Michael Chandler is blown away by this. He was he believed it, at least to extent. He's like, whoa, you're, you're amazing, Joseph Smith. That's amazing. Here, you're interested in these? Yes, we're very interested in these. We'll raise the money to purchase them. Well, okay, Joseph, but I'm telling you, I'm not interested in selling just the papyri. If you buy the papyri, you also have to buy the four mummies as well, the rest of my exhibit. You have to buy the whole thing. Okay, we'll buy the whole thing. Joseph Smith successfully raised among his people $2,400, which in 1835 is a large sum of money, and he bought all of Michael Chandler's exhibit, the whole thing. Mm. Michael Chandler then leaves, and that's the last we hear of him. That's the history of how these mummies, as well as this Egyptian papyri scroll, which Joseph Smith says were the writings of Father Abraham, that's how it fell into the hands of Joseph Smith. So... I'm confused. So an Egyptian writing by Abraham, <laughs> how, how does that happen? How does that when, work? <laughs> yeah, when was, I mean, this is, how do they, how do they say that, that, that Abraham knew how to write Egyptian? The connection that they make is that from Genesis, we know that Abraham and Sarah spent a small time in Egypt. They went down to Egypt for a very short period of time, and that's what they claim. It was while he was in Egypt that he wrote. Learned the language, these, wrote this thing. Learned the language, wrote it up, and as mentioned previous, the papyri that were found in Thebes ultimately got to Michael Chandler and then to Joseph Smith. They've been dated, and they've been dated to be about 200 BC, which is like, 
1,800 years off from Father Abraham. (laughs) But I have to acknowledge that uh, we believe that the book of the Revelation was written by John, and yet we don't have the original scrolls that John himself literally wrote with his own hand. Sure. They're copies of copies. And so I don't personally see you know, a problem if you have papyri, the claim being it's written by Abraham and they date to 200 BC. We, we could be looking at this as a copy of a copy of a copy. I'll give them that. But that's their claim. Father Abraham, he goes down to Egypt, and while he's there, he writes... This book of Abraham leaves it in Egypt, and the Egyptians must have valued it, at least to the extent that they seemed to copy it multiple times until we get to 200 BC, and these scrolls are buried with these mummies in Thebes. That's the story. Okay. Does that clear things up for you? <laughs> sure. Let's, let's, let's assume it's true. Let's, let's go with this. Let's, okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Hey. Remember what, uh, if you assume things, it just makes an ass out of you and me. So let's not assume anything here. But that's at least the story. Now, getting to multiple uh, letters as well as diary entries, we can see the history of the translation of said papyri scrolls. Because that was the claim. Joseph Smith says, I can read this. I can read it and I can translate it, right? We have an individual by the name of W.W. Phelps, and he was one of Joseph Smith's scribes for the Book of Abraham. This is in a letter to his wife, Sally, dated June 20 of 1835. He says, the last of June, four Egyptian mummies were brought here to Kirtland, Ohio. There were two papyri scrolls. Keep in mind what Michael Chandler originally received was those like five total but by the time they end up in the hands of Joseph, you only have the two remaining. There were two papyri scrolls besides some other ancient Egyptian writings with them, and no one could translate these writings. They were presented to President Joseph Smith. He soon knew what they were, and they, and they said these rolls of papyri contained the sacred writings kept of Joseph in Pharaoh's court in Egypt and the teachings of Father Abraham. God has so ordained it that these mummies and writings have been brought into the LDS Church. These records of old times, when we translate and print them in a book, will make a good witness for the Book of Mormon. There is nothing secret or hidden that shall not be revealed, and they come to the saints. So from that letter, W.W. Phelps to his wife, we can see at least the motive behind the translation of these Egyptian papyri. They wanted it to be a good witness for the Book of Mormon. That was the claim previous that Joseph Smith has done this before, he can do it again. Mm. So Joseph Smith comes out and says, yes, by the authority and by the power of God, I can translate these. I'm just gonna have a few scribes you know, helping me with the process, but we'll get these things translated, just like I did previously with the Book of Mormon. So that's the motive. Now getting to Joseph Smith himself. This is the founder of the LDS Church. This is from his own diary. And we're gonna look at these diary entries in chronological order. The first one is July 5th of 1835. 
which reads, With W.W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery as scribes, I, Joseph Smith, commenced the translation of some of the characters or hieroglyphics, and much to our joy found that one of the scrolls contained the writings of Abraham, another the writings of Joseph of Egypt, etc., a more full account of which will appear in its place as I proceed to examine or unfold them. Truly, we can say, the Lord is beginning to reveal the abundance of peace and truth. Do you think he just believed that no one would ever find out? He could say whatever he wanted because no one else in America knew how to speak or read uh, Egyptian. That's ex- so who's ever going to find out? That's exactly what I believe. He knew that no one could read this stuff. And he had no reason to think that anybody would ever be able to read this stuff. Hmm. He was just all, brazen enough to claim that he could. And Well, is, is that not what all false prophets are? Mm, yeah. They come out in rebellion against the Almighty God. You have to be pretty arrogant and pretty brazen to do something like that. Hmm. So I believe that's exactly well, you know, what was in his heart and mind. I can say whatever I want to say. No one's ever going to find out. It's, it's like, you know, the wicked, they do what they do in the secret places, in darkness. No one sees me. No one's going to know. But the Almighty knows. And the Almighty, who has infinite wisdom, he puts things in place to make sure that such false prophets are exposed for exactly what they are. Hmm. Especially in 1835, I, he, would, <laughs> he would think that he could get away with it. There's no internet, there's no cameras, there's right. no... Anything. No one's going to know. No one will know. Oh, but yeah, we know. We know. (laughs) Next diary entry. It's uh, just July of 1835. The remainder of this month, I was continually engaged in translating an alphabet to the book of Abraham and arranging a grammar of the Egyptian language as practiced by the ancients. October 1st. This afternoon, I labored on the Egyptian alphabet in company with brothers Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps. And during the research, the principles of astronomy as understood by Father Abraham and the ancients unfolded to our understanding, the particulars of which will appear hereafter. October 3rd. In the afternoon, I waited on most of the 12, that is the 12 apostles of the LDS Church, at my house and exhibited to them the ancient records and gave explanations. This day passed off with the blessing of the Lord. November 14, thus came the word of the Lord unto me. Now, this is where we're gonna have to pause and we look very closely at this entry. This is, this is one of these revelations because he starts out by saying, thus came the word of the Lord to me. Up until this point, Joseph Smith has had those two primary scribes, W.W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery. But at this point, getting into November 1835, he brings in this third individual named Warren Parrish. And by revelation from God, this Warren Parrish is called to do this work, Mm. to help Joseph with the book of Abraham. So, thus came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, Verily, thus saith the Lord unto my servant Joseph, concerning my servant Warren Parrish. Behold, it shall come to pass in his day that he shall see great things show forth themselves unto my people. He shall see much of my ancient records and shall know of hidden things and shall be endowed with a knowledge of hidden languages. And if he desires and shall seek it at my hand, he shall be privileged with writing much of my word as a scribe unto me for the benefit of my people. That's the whole context here. Now, this is supposedly revelation from the Lord. And he says, 
my ancient records, hidden things, endowed with a knowledge of hidden languages. Because at the time, that's exactly what Egyptian was. It was this hidden language. And supposedly the Lord is identifying these Egyptian papyrus scrolls as my ancient records. Hmm. Very dangerous when you start out with, thus saith the Lord. (laughs) Joseph Smith did it all the time. (laughs) Better be hope you're doing the right. If If you put words in the mouth of the Almighty or his son Yeshua, you, you need to be a true prophet or else you are in serious hot water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not even hot water, you're in hot fire. November 19, I returned home and spent the day in translating the Egyptian records. November 20, we, that is Joseph Smith and Warren Parrish, spent the day in translating and made rapid progress. November 24, in the afternoon, we translated some of the Egyptian records. November 25, spent the day translating. November 26, we spent the day in transcribing Egyptian characters from the papyri. December 12th, at about 12 o'clock, a number of young persons called to see the Egyptian records. I requested my scribe, Warren Parrish, to exhibit them, and he did so. One of the young ladies who had been examining them was asked if they had the appearance of antiquity. She observed with an air of contempt that they did not. On hearing this, I was surprised at the ignorance she displayed, and I observed to her that she was an anomaly in creation, for all the wise and learned that had ever examined them without hesitation pronounced them ancient. I further remarked that it was downright wickedness, ignorance, bigotry, and superstition that caused her to make the remark, and that I would put it on record. I have done so because it is a fair sample of the prevailing spirit of the times, showing that the victims of priestcraft and superstition would not believe, though one should rise from the dead. That diary entry is so relevant because it shows that if anyone had the audacity to question Joseph or anything concerning what he was doing, he would not only mock you, but he would publicly humiliate you. It's exactly what he would do. And so it's like, whoa, don't question this guy. Badgering, manipulation, all hallmarks of a cult leader. This this young woman, downright wickedness, ignorance, bigotry, and superstition. And I will put it on record. Mm. Yeah, don't question him. (laughs) He'll get you. (laughs) We're going to continue this. Hold on to that thought. We'll be back with more from Shabbat Night Live and Jake uh, Jake Smith. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Oh, wow. Where did that come from? Jake Hilton. Wow, that was a terrible (laughs) slip. Yeah, you're good, brother. Yeah, so Jake Hilton, anyway. (laughs) Not Joseph Smith, Jake Hilton, okay? So thank you very much for supporting Shabbat Night Live. We'll be right back with more. Thank you for supporting this program. We'll give you a couple minutes to do just that. Thank you for supporting this program. You know... If you want to manipulate somebody, all you have to do is call them a bigot and a racist. It's been going on since, oh, at least the 1800s <laughs> with Joseph Smith. Anybody who questioned him, this one particular young lady, he just let her have it and called her all those names. That's exactly what he did. Downright wickedness, ignorance, bigotry, superstition. I'm going to put this on record. You're in trouble, young You're lady. You're in trouble, young lady. <laughs> it's on your permanent You're record. You're questioning me. And the only thing she did was... I don't know if these things are ancient. Are these things ancient? How dare you? You are an anomaly in creation. Wow. You're a freak of nature. (laughs) 
Basket of deplorables. Oh, you are. it. <laughs> anyway, we continue. Let's go there. Okay. We continue with Joseph Smith's diary entries and this, this history of the coming forth of this, quote, Book of Abraham. January 12, 1836 now. This afternoon, a young man called to see the Egyptian manuscripts, and I exhibited them to him. He expressed great satisfaction and appeared very anxious to observe a knowledge of the translation. And lastly, February 11 of 1836, spent the afternoon in reading and exhibiting the ancient records to those who called to see me. Heaven's blessings have attended me. Hallelujah. Heaven's blessings have been with me. You know, this whole process has just been, uh, the Lord has been with me the whole time. As you saw earlier, he's got this, quote, revelation from the Lord concerning Warren Parish. We're gonna, we're bringing forth these ancient records of the Lord, hidden languages. I'm puzzled as to how he pulled this off with other people. How did they end up, if they're helping him translate, how did they, how did they do this? Where they say, oh, this says that, and they would agree. Well, there is uh, a tremendous amount of historical evidence to show that his closest associates and friends were well aware of the fraud. They just went along with it. Mm. Uh, one of them, uh, by the name of Martin Harris, was not only part of the fraud, but we know his motive. His motive was financial gain. He was one of the scribes that was helping Joseph Smith with the Book of Mormon. Mm. Now, Martin Harris's wife didn't believe this stuff. And Martin Harris's wife was saying, you know it's a lie. In fact, it's recorded in her own journal that she oh, has wow. this conversation with her husband saying, you know this is a lie. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you helping this man? And Martin Harris's response, according to his own wife, is that if you will just leave me alone with it, I can make some money off of this. Mm. <laughs> wow. What, what, what's that root of all kinds of evil? <laughs> oh, right, the lust for money. Yeah, mm. exactly. So Joseph Smith, obviously, he's the ultimate fraud here. But his closest friends and associates, they're a part of the scam. Wow, okay. So from all of this history, we now see the coming forth of this, quote, book of Abraham, which is canonized by the LDS Church. It has been official church scripture since the mid-1830s till today. It is still scripture. And the preface to the book of Abraham reads, the book of Abraham translated from the papyrus by Joseph Smith, a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt. The writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. Now, we could literally spend multiple, multiple episodes <laughs> uh, looking at the false doctrines that are taught in the actual text of the book of Abraham itself. But instead of doing that, I personally would rather focus on three of the facsimiles that are also in the Book of Abraham. Egyptian images that were taken from the papyrus or fragments of papyrus that have been copied over and are literally a part of the Book of Abraham. There are three of them, facsimile one, two, and three. We're, right now, we're gonna be first looking at one and then three. We'll get to two later. All right. So, 
Book of Abraham, this is facsimile number one, as it appears in the book itself. Now, it's important to know that Joseph Smith did not have this complete image here. He filled in a lot of these details that he didn't have from the papyrus itself. This is a photograph of the actual papyrus that Joseph Smith had. You can see that it's a fragment, there are portions of it missing, and you can even see how there are drawings on the picture, the, the paper behind it that Joseph Smith himself did in order to fill in those details. So you got the head of one of these individuals that's completely gone, Joseph Smith fills that in, and then you got the body of this other individual that's laying on his back that he also filled in. This is what Joseph Smith had, and this is the ultimate result that appears in the book of Abraham. Let's now get to Joseph Smith's translation of facsimile number one. Figure number one is the angel of the Lord. Figure number two is Abraham fastened upon an altar. It's important <laughs> to know at least that in the book of Abraham, one of the stories that's recorded, you know, written by Joseph Smith, is that at the time Abraham was in Egypt, he was captured by the Egyptians, and at some point they put him on this sacrificial altar, and they were about to sacrifice him. They're about to sacrifice him to their gods, and this angel of the Lord appears and rescues Abraham and takes him away from Egypt. So that's, that's where he's getting this you know, idea here. So figure two there lying on his back. Well, that's Abraham fastened upon that sacrificial altar. Figure three, the idolatrous priest of Elkanah. And a lot of these, these names that you're going to read, total works of the imagination. Mm. <laughs> Complete works of the imagination. One might say, Elkanah. Well, that sounds Egyptian-ish. Uh, just, just from the mind of a very corrupt man. Figure four, well, that's the altar for sacrifice by the idolatrous priests standing before the gods of Elkanah, Libnah, Mamakrah, Korash, and Pharaoh. Figure five, six, seven, eight, and nine are those idolatrous gods. Figure 10, as you can see in the image, it looks like some kind of a table-looking uh, image there. Joseph Smith says, well, that's an image of Abraham in Egypt. Figure 11, designed to represent the pillars of heaven as understood by the Egyptians. And figure 12, Ra-Kiyang, signifying expanse or the firmament over our heads. But in this case, in relation to the subject, the Egyptians meant it to signify... Uh, <laughs> now, he doesn't even get to the pronunciation here correct. Shaomao, uh, to be hig or the heavens, answering to the Hebrew word shamayim. Uh, Shaomao, you're like Rao Ki Yang Shao Mao. What? What? He's just making all this stuff up. 100. This is just a work <laughs> of his imagination. Motive. This is to show evidence and proof for the Book of Mormon that work that you know I've already done. As he you know says, but the motive is also money. Let's build up this church. Oh, and the LDS Church today. Money? <laughs> they don't have a money problem. Mm. They are a multi, multi-billion dollar corporation. 
billions and billions. They have $32 billion just in the stock market alone. So money being the original motive, it has certainly brought them that worldly success, as we know that the devil can provide. He takes Yeshua up to the high mountain, all these kingdoms I will give to you, if only you will bow down and worship me. Mm. I think that's exactly what Joseph Smith was willing to do and the leadership of the LDS Church. So here are Joseph Smith's translations for facsimile number one, but here's where it gets hilarious. <laughs> Joseph Smith would have thought to himself, no one will find out, no one could possibly you know, uh, learn this ancient language, there's no other copies of this same scroll, certainly no copies that are complete or whole, uh, but little did he know that there are additional copies of this exact same papyri that Oops. have been found, <laughs> and not only fragments of the papyri, but complete papyri of the same image this is the image that Joseph Smith believed it represented. Here's actually a copy of the true Well, that's image a little there. different. Well, that's a little <laughs> different. Wait a minute. That's, that's kind of a jackal-head-looking being there. And what's going on with this individual? This is the Book of Abraham on the left, what Joseph Smith you know, filled in with what he didn't have. And over here on the right is an actual papyri of what really this is. It's known as the whore book of breathing or the book of the dead. It's a book about a particular pharaoh named Hor and his mummification process and his journey into the afterlife. That's who this individual quote Hor is. <laughs> So we get back <laughs> to the Joseph. I didn't hear Abraham in there anywhere. <laughs> we get back to the Joseph Smith translation that we just went through. Let's now look at the actual translation. Okay. Egyptologist translation. The Egyptologist translation, figure one is the spirit or Ba of Hor, the deceased fellow, on the table there. Figure two is the deceased. His name was Hor. Figure three, what we saw from the original for that copy of the true manuscript, it had that jackal head. Yes. Figure three is the Egyptian god Anubis. See original image. This figure was originally portrayed with the head of a jackal. Figure four, a common funerary buyer or what's called a lion couch. Figures five through eight are canopic jars containing the deceased internal organs. Makes we, a lot more sense. We, we know that's exactly what they you know, had in yeah. Egypt. They would have these canopic jars. They would do their whole uh, mummification process. We put the heart, liver, brain, and this, this, and this. That's what those are. Uh, figure nine is that this is the god Horus. Figure 10 is what's called a libation table bearing wines, oils, etc., And they're very common in Egypt. Whereas Joseph Smith was saying, well, that's a representation of Abraham in Egypt. And it's like, that's just a table. Yeah. <laughs> so strange. That's just a table <laughs> with wines and oils on it. And I'm assuming this is what they teach, as in we saw uh, in a previous episode, they teach this in their seminaries to this day of, the, of this, I'm sure. Oh, no. Oh. Well, at professor and scholar and leadership levels of the church, they all know this. Ah. They all know this. 
that the Book of Abraham from the papyri is not accurate. Oh, they, they, they do. They absolutely know okay. this. But when it comes to seminary teachers or professor LDS teachers to their students, they never mention any of this mm. ever. They just teach the doctrines taught in the Book of Abraham. They teach the translations provided by Joseph Smith. Hush, hush on what the Egyptologists actually know this says. Ah. <laughs> Never mention a word about it. And they strongly encourage uh, from the first presidency on down through its leadership, they strongly encourage their membership to never question anything in the church and certainly don't look at any outside sources. Hmm. Don't look at any of that stuff. Just pay attention to what we're telling you. That's, they are constantly teaching You that. know what's funny about, not funny, but strange, <laughs> is that uh, when I was back in the Pentecostal church, that was the same type of warning. Mm. Don't look at any other books right. other than just the Bible and what we teach you, it is saying. Mm -hmm. What we teach you, it's right, saying. Right, right. Yeah. That you, you must be, you know, the, that you, you must uh, ha have this, this experience of speaking in tongues in order to be saved and mm -hmm. all this type of thing. And it's like, don't listen to anybody else. You're going right. to be deceived if you look elsewhere. Right. That's, and strange that that's That the right form. there, anyone who would say that, that brings up alarm bells and red flags in my mind. You're like, hold on a second now. <laughs> yeah. Are you the authority or is God and his word the authority? Well, you know what happened after the Pentecostal church for me was Torah. There you go. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> So getting back to the Egyptologist translation, again, figure 10 is just a libation table bearing wines, oils, etc. very common in Egypt. Figure 11 is a palace facade called the Shrek. Figure 12, this is just the water that the crocodile swims in. In other words, not a single one of Joseph Smith's translations for facsimile one, not a single one of them is true. Every single one is false. 100% false. <laughs> Moving on to facsimile three that appears in the book of Abraham. I know that we skip facsimile two, and that's because we will have to later spend a great deal of time looking at facsimile two. Because oh, wow. Facsimile two, there's something in it that is not just false, like what we're seeing here, but it is absolutely blasphemous. It's that bad, huh? Like, one of the worst heresies and blasphemies against God Almighty you can imagine. But we'll get there. First, let's look at Book of Abraham facsimile number three. In facsimile three, we have these six figures. Figure one, according to Joseph Smith, is Abraham sitting upon Pharaoh's throne. Figure two is King Pharaoh. Figure three signifies Abraham in Egypt. Notice how figure three it's the same imagery that we saw in facsimile one. It's just that libation table. It's the table, yeah. It's just the table bearing the oils and the wines. Figure four is the prince of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, I want to pause here, and I want to look closely at facsimile, uh, excuse me, facsimile three, figures two and four. You look at those two figures, and it's obvious that they're feminine, I was going to say, they're women, but they're... They're women. You're not an Egyptologist, and you know more than Joseph Smith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's some strangely shaped men in Egypt. 
You're not even an Egyptologist, and yet you are seeing something in 10 seconds that Joseph Smith could not see over months. Mm. You look at figures two and four, and those are clearly feminine bodies. Yeah. But he says, no, figure two, that's King Pharaoh, and figure four, well, that's the prince of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Figure five is this individual he names Shulem, one of the king's waiters, and figure six, well, that's Olimlaw, a slave. And for anyone who knows Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon as well as church history, uh, extreme racism in the history of the LDS Church, no question. You see something with you know, dark skin and well, he's gotta be a slave in the minds of these uh, older Mormons. But then we get to the Egyptologist translation and we see that none of them are accurate than what Joseph Smith says. Figure one is no, that's Osiris, the Egyptian god Osiris. Two, that is that feminine <laughs> Egyptian deity. That's Isis, the great, the god's mother. Three is just that libation table with the oils and wines. Four is Mat, mistress of the gods, also that feminine deity clearly shown in the image. Five is Osiris Hor, justified forever. Five is the image of the spirit of that same individual, Hor. First, figure, first facsimile shows him being mummified. This is facsimile three. Now he's in the afterlife and he's uh -huh. being presented to the gods in the afterlife. Uh -huh. And he's now justified forever. And figure six is that same god of the dead, Anubis, that we saw from facsimile one. Not a single thing that Joseph Smith says this is representing. Nothing is accurate. Not a single thing. It's 100% false. And so we see, just like we saw with facsimile one, facsimile three, it is 100% false. And next time, we're going to be looking at the Book of Abraham, facsimile two, and it's from facsimile two that we have something truly blasphemous. All right, so we'll do that next time. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, so this, this is longer than we thought. This is great. We're gonna do an extra episode on this. So stay tuned for that. Come back and see Shabbat Night Live next week with Jake Hilton talking about facsimile two from the book of Abraham. <laughs> Bet you something you never heard before. I hadn't heard of it either. So see you next week. Until then, Shavuot Tov.